The scripture reading for this morning is from Zechariah chapter 9, verses 9 through 11. Please stand for the reading of God's word. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt to the foal of a donkey. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem, and the battle bow shall be cut off, and he shall speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. As for you also, because of the blood of my covenant with you, I will set your prisoners free from the waterless pits. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Well, we're taking a break this morning from our study of the life of Abraham to consider the events leading up to the crucifixion and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And as we've already mentioned, today is Palm Sunday, the day that Jesus Christ entered Jerusalem at the beginning of the final week of his ministry on earth. And you may have two questions, having just read that text from Zechariah and thinking of what we've been studying up to this point over the last few months, and that that is this. The first question is, maybe, what does this passage in Zechariah have to do with Palm Sunday, an event that took place roughly 500 years later? And the second question you may have is, what does this passage in Zechariah have to do with Abraham, who lived about 2,000 years before Zechariah? And I'm, I'm glad you asked. Because this is a wonderful opportunity to remind us that the Bible is one story. God is doing one thing from beginning to end. He is rescuing a people for himself through his son, Jesus Christ. And so all of these stories, the story of Abraham, the story of Israel at the time of Zechariah, some 2,000 years later, and the story of Jesus 500 years after that are all chapters in the one true story of what God is doing to rescue people from their sin. And Zechariah chapter 9, verses 9 through 11, runs right along that line. The line from the blood on the ground in Genesis 15 when God cut that covenant with Abram, if you remember that from several weeks ago, the blood on the ground in Genesis 15, that line runs through Zechariah all the way to the blood on the ground at the foot of the cross. So one of the things we're going to do this morning is just trace the storyline. It's going to be to remind ourselves that there is a straight line from Abraham to Palm Sunday and then ultimately to the return of the king. But we're also going to look at the specific fulfillment of Zechariah 9, 9 through 11 in Matthew chapter 21, 1 through 11. So when we get to that point, I'll let you know the page number on the Bible in front of you and I hope you'll turn to it as I hope that you're also at Zechariah right now. Um, What we'll see when we get to Matthew 21 is a tragic example of people failing to see their place in this one true story. And that's my burden for us this morning, that we do not fail to see our place in the one true story that is unfolding all around us even now. 
These people in Matthew chapter 21 that we'll look at in a little bit were missing it. They were missing and failing to see their place in the one true story that was unfolding all around them because they were living in a rival story. Their rival story, like the one true story of what God was doing, involved a king who was coming to bring salvation to his people. They had a happily ever after ending to their story in mind. It was not the happily ever after ending that Jesus had come to bring for all who put their trust in him for their salvation. And so the question I hope you'll be willing to consider this morning is, are you living in a rival story? I hope you'll be willing to ask yourself, what is my happily ever after ending? What does it look like? What's the thing that I'm hoping, that I'm, that I'm living for? What's my happily ever after ending? And through that, ask the question, what story am I actually inhabiting? So to get at those questions, get to the answers to those questions, we're going to do the following this morning. First, we're going to trace the one true story from Abraham to Zechariah to Palm Sunday. And then secondly, we're going to consider our need to recognize and reject our rival stories. And then we'll end with a call to embrace the one true story. So, Trace the one story, reject your rival story, and embrace the true story. That's where we're headed. First, let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we come before you this morning, we do ask that you would be with us. Lord, would you help us to see our place and what you are doing? Help us to recognize the rival stories that we inhabit, the things that we live for that fall so far short of what you offer to all who will look to you in faith. We ask for your help to that end. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so let's trace the one story. First, from Abraham to Zechariah. I referenced Genesis chapter 15 in the introduction. And if you remember uh, that passage, that was where um, God cut a covenant with Abram. And, you know, it was a gory picture, right? The, a, Abraham went into a, a deep sleep, and, and uh, well, Abraham was first commanded by God to, to cut these animals in half, and, and then Abraham went into this deep sleep, and he saw God passing through the animal parts, um, represented by the smoking fire pot and the flaming torch, which, you know, represented God. The, the key thing being God passed through the animal parts and not Abram. So you remember that picture. It was a beautiful picture of, of God's covenant of grace, what God was going to do. He was, in effect, saying to Abram, may it be that if either one of us fails to keep covenant, I bear the curse of the covenant. So that was Genesis chapter 15. One of the things that we didn't talk about at that time was something that was said to Abram by God when he fell into a deep sleep, and it's this. As the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram, and behold, dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. Then the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs, and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. Now, you remember, one of the 
core components of the promise made to Abraham was that he would be the father of many nations. He would have countless descendants, you know, greater than the number of stars in the sky and the grains of sand on the seashore. This was what Abram was promised. Here, hundreds of years before the fact, Abram is told, your offspring will actually be enslaved in a land not their own. Abram was told, we could, Abraham was told of the captivity of Israel long before it happened. Now, if you've read through Genesis and you've gotten to the end of Genesis, you know that Genesis ends with Abraham's people, ultimately the people of Israel, heading into Egypt in order to escape famine. Joseph was instrumental in that. You remember, if you look to the end of of Genesis to read that account. Genesis ends, the book of Exodus begins, and we read that there's a new Pharaoh in the land, one who did not remember and know Joseph and the others, and that Pharaoh, that ruler, would ultimately enslave God's people in Egypt for guess how long? 400 years, just as God had said to Abraham. After 400 years, God raised up Moses to deliver them. Moses led the people out of Egypt. God went before them and parted the sea and then allowed the sea to crash back down on the enemies as they were pursuing God's people. God met Moses at Mount Sinai. God gave Moses the law for the people. He gave them the instructions for the sacrifices. Moses came down. He read the law to the people. This is Exodus chapter 24. And then Sacrifices were offered at the base of the altar. Oxen were slaughtered. Half of the blood was poured at the base of the offering in order to signify that God's wrath would need to be satisfied in order for people to approach him, to be accepted by him. And then half of the blood of the covenant was sprinkled on the people to signify that it would not be their blood that would make atonement for sin, but the blood of a substitute. God would lead the people through the wilderness for 40 years because of their disobedience. But eventually, Abraham's offspring would return to Canaan. They would return to the land that God had promised to them. But in time, they would lose the land. Nations would be raised. There would be the kingdom of Israel, the kingdom of Judah, and king after king that God had provided would far too often lead the people astray. Lead them to worship the idols of the lands of those around them. And so the hearts of God's people were given over to other gods, gods who were no gods at all. And so God would raise up two nations, Assyria and Babylon and Israel and Judah would be conquered and they would be overthrown. So now here we are about 200 years after the exile and some 2,000 years after Abraham, that Zechariah comes on the scene. And here's this prophet who, in his book, prophesies about a coming kingdom. Now, what was happening, you know, at, in, historically at the time? Well, Babylon had been replaced with another superpower, Persia. The Persian king Darius had said that some of these exiles could return to Jerusalem. So this is the setting in which Zechariah was prophesying. There are people that have returned to Jerusalem, and it's in shambles. And the temple is in shambles. And there's no king, and there's no kingdom. And God, through Zechariah, says a king will come. 
king will come. That is the book of Zechariah. Zechariah, the whole, the whole book is governed by a vision of the kingdom to come. Chapters 1 through 9 says that God is on the move to rescue his people. Chapters, yeah, the latter part of chapter 9 through 14 focuses on what life will be like once the king has come to his people. And those three verses that we read this morning focus on the king's arrival. What will happen when the king shows up? So what do we learn about this king from verses 9 through 11? Well, in verse 9, we learn that he'll make a triumphal entry into Jerusalem. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. We learn that he will bring salvation to his people. Again, verse 9, righteous and having salvation is he we learn that he will be a humble king who comes in peace, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. That's the end of verse 9. Now, <clears throat> in the ancient Near East, when a king came on a donkey, it was a way of signifying that he was coming in peace. Either he was a conquering king who was returning in victory, or he was a king who was just approaching a city and wanting to signify that he was coming in peace. He wasn't mounted on a war horse. He was coming in peace. We learn from verse 10 that he will bring an offer of peace for the nations. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem and the battle bow shall be cut off and he shall speak peace to the nations. We learn that his rule will cover all the earth. His rule shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. We learn that he will remember the blood of his covenant. Look at verse 11. And as for you also, because of the blood of my covenant with you, and then we learn that he will set people free who are in exile. Last line of verse 11, I will set your prisoners free from the waterless pit. And so a line has been drawn from Abraham to Zechariah because the people to whom Zechariah is prophesying, ultimately the people to whom God is making these promises are Abraham's people. Abraham's offspring, God's people, the people whom God has chosen to cut covenant with and ultimately pour his blessings out upon. So how do we get then from Zechariah to Palm Sunday? Well, let's look at Matthew chapter 21, and that is on page 826 of the Bible that's in front of you if you don't have one with you. Matthew chapter 21, let me read 1 through 11 for us. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethphage, to the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord needs them, and he will send them at once. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. The disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and put them on their cloaks, and put on them their cloaks, and he sat on them. Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. 
And the crowds that were before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up, saying, Who is this? And the crowd said, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. So, what's the setting here? The setting is, it's the time of the Passover. Pilgrims are making their way into Jerusalem. Not everyone returned. For instance, when, when Darius, king of Persia, said the exiles can return to Jerusalem, not all of them went. And so you had pockets of Jewish people throughout the, um, the, the ancient Near East who were making their way once a year into Jerusalem in order to celebrate, in this case, the, the great holy feast of Passover. So you had all these pilgrims that were pouring in. Some historians say that Jerusalem would swell to three times the size of its normal population at the time of the Passover. You also had this huge entourage of people following Jesus because Jesus had been doing these miracles and he had been you know, doing this great teaching and he had lots of people who were following him in. So you had Jesus coming. You had the, I mean, the day before, Jesus had raised Lazarus from the dead. I mean, word was traveling fast concerning this Jesus. And so you had G, you know, Jerusalem already, you know, way over capacity. You had people making their way out to see this Jesus who is coming. You had others coming with Jesus into Jerusalem. And then you have them laying out. Well, let me, let me just, let's just pause for a second and see what happens. Jesus tells his disciples to go in and get a donkey. It's interesting. Throughout Jesus' ministry, he walks, unless he's on a boat. Everywhere Jesus went, he walked. He never rode an animal, ever, except here. And he asked them to go get him a donkey to ride into Jerusalem. Jesus was deliberately fulfilling Zechariah 9, 9 through 11. He knew who he was. He knew what he had come to do. He is making a statement. I am the Messiah. I am the king. I'm the one who has come to deliver you. So now this one true story that we've been tracing has gone from Abraham. It's gone through Moses. It's gone through Zechariah. And now it's landed here for a moment on Palm Sunday. But the reaction of the crowd in Matthew 21 leads us to our second point, and that is the need to recognize and reject our rival stories. The people, the crowd, here on Palm Sunday were living in a rival story. We know that from two things, Matthew 21. We know it from the branches that we read about in verse 8. Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. Now, all four gospel accounts contain the account of the triumphal entry. Other gospel accounts give a little bit more detail. These were palm branches that the crowd was lying down on the road. It's very interesting. There's nothing significant about palm branches when it comes to the Passover. In fact, palm branches have no religious significance for the Jewish people at the time. However, palm branches were significant, not in a religious sense, but in a political sense to the Jewish people, 
because palm branches were signifiers of insurrection. They pointed back to a series of so-called messiahs who were coming to deliver God's people from Roman rule now, and palm branches were used to signify insurrection. So the palm branches sent a message, a clue, that they were living in a rival story, that their vision of what this king would be fell short of who the king actually was. We also know from what they were saying. Verse 9 says, And the crowds went before him and the followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. That word Hosanna literally means save us. The phrase son of David is a, a, a way of referring to the messianic king. The king of Israel. The one who would come and bring salvation, the Messiah. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord is from Psalm 118, which is a royal psalm, one of the psalms that point to the one true king. So what were they saying? They were saying, blessed be the true king sent to us by God, deliver us. What were they expecting? A king who would drive out the Romans. A king who would restore the kingdom to Israel. That was the happily ever after ending to their rival story. It was close, but oh so far away. What's the happily ever after ending to your rival story? Well, let's ask first, what is a rival story? A rival story is a story that promises meaning, purpose, and joy apart from Jesus Christ. A rival story is a story that promises meaning, purpose, and joy apart from Jesus Christ. It leads to a life lived in pursuit of some happier ever after ending that differs from the one that Jesus came to bring. So, for example, if your happily ever after ending is success then you will live a life of grinding yourself to the bone at work or at school or whatever it is that your context is for trying to prove yourself successful in the eyes of the world or in the eyes of a parent or in the eyes of whoever. If your happy ever, happily ever after ending is wealth, then you will live your life perhaps lying, cheating, and stealing. If, if not that, then certainly working way too hard in order to get more and more and more because you always need at least one more dollar. If your happily ever after ending is to be the smartest person in the room, then school is not something that can be enjoyed because you like to learn. It becomes an avenue by which you acquire enough knowledge to beat up everybody else intellectually. If your happily ever after ending is to always be insta-ready, then it's all about appearance. It's all about how you look. It's all about image. That's what you're living for. What is the happily ever after ending to your story? What is it? What are you living for? What do you think will bring you ultimate meaning, ultimate joy, enable you to find ultimate purpose, to have lived a life worth living? What is it? We all have one. Is it the one true story and the ending that Jesus promises in it? And where has the pursuit of your happily ever after ending led you? 
You feeling exhausted? Are you feeling fulfilled? Have you reached that pinnacle and realized, you know, this really is enough? I couldn't possibly want anything more. That has never been the story of anyone who has lived for something less than what Jesus Christ offers. We're called to embrace this true story, the story of what Jesus Christ came to do. That story was unfolding right in front of these folks on Palm Sunday. They were getting a king, but it was a different kind of king. They were getting a king who had come to fight a different kind of battle. He was not coming to deliver them from oppression from Rome, but from the oppression of sin. He was not coming to bring national peace. He was coming to bring peace with God. Not to restore an earthly kingdom, but to inaugurate the kingdom of God. And when they didn't see him delivering on their dreams, they crucified him. We're in Holy Week. Friday of Holy Week, Jesus will be crucified. These people who were shouting, Hosanna, save us, shouted, crucify him, and they failed to see that in doing so, they were in fact caught up in the plan of what Jesus came to do. They cried out, let his blood be on us and our children. That's Matthew chapter 26. And that's exactly what they needed. And it's exactly what each of us need as well. This was how the one story was written to unfold. The crucifixion of Jesus Christ was no accident. It was part of the one story that God had written to deliver people from their sin. It's in embracing that story, being caught up in what God is doing now to return people to a relationship with him, to restore to them the joy of the salvation that he secured for them in Jesus Christ, to in one day, one day upon his return, not only bring them into perfect relationship with him and all of his people, but in perfect, perfect restoration to a, a, a reconstituted cosmos. I mean, what awaits us, the happily ever after ending that Jesus Christ has secured for all who put their trust in him is so much greater than any happily ever after ending we could construct for ourselves. Now, let's do a little thought experiment with me. It's a silly one. But still, humor me. Imagine you are a fish. And somehow, you've been able to fling yourself up on the beach because you were convinced that life would be better out there. And as you're laying there gasping for breath, what is your true happily ever after ending? Yeah, it's getting back in the water. That's the happily ever after ending for a fish. It's being in its proper environment. It's not trying to make the beach more manageable. It's not trying to find something on the beach that will bring meaning and, and purpose and fulfillment and joy. It's getting back in the water. Because that's where fish were created to thrive. Listen. To be a human being is to be created for relationship with your creator. It is to know your creator God, live life in submission to him, 
because he's the creator and we're the created, is to enjoy the gifts that he's given us, first and foremost, knowing him, but then also being on this earth and given the opportunity to, to image him to other people and to take the raw materials of this world and, and create things for his glory. This is what it means to swim. And we're trying to write stories that have happy endings out on the beach. And Jesus came to make a way from the beach back into the water. Because we can't get ourselves there. But Jesus died so that all who look to him will be forgiven of their sin, his blood shed, because God has not failed to remember his covenant, that we might have life. And Jesus says, have it to the full. The message of Christianity is that life is found in relationship with God. Embrace the one true story by putting your faith in Jesus Christ for your salvation. One day this king will return. As with all the prophecies in the Old Testament that, are, that we read about in the prophets, there's a partial and an ultimate fulfillment. Zechariah was Fulfilled in part when Jesus came on the donkey. Revelation chapter 19 tells us that this king will return, this time on a horse. This time to consummate the kingdom that he inaugurated when he first came. This time to bring justice. This time to judge. Remember our lesson from last week? Sodom and Gomorrah? A preview of what is to come for all those who have rejected the king's rule. And yet this king in Revelation chapter 19 who will come to restore, rescue, and make all things new, just as he promised he would do. How live until the day of the king's return? I didn't read chapter 9, verse 12 from Zechariah. I'm going to go back there and just read chapter 12. No, verse 12. Verse 12 says, return to your stronghold, O prisoner of hope. Return to your stronghold, O prisoners of hope. I love that line, prisoners of hope. Return to your stronghold. We can make application of that because God is our refuge and strength. He's our very present help in times of trouble. It's to him that we return as prisoners of hope. Hope, those who are so filled with the hope that is ours in the gospel of Jesus Christ that it's as if that hope has us in its grip. This is the gospel hope that we're called to. God has said, I who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it in Philippians 1.6. There's reason for hope. God has you in his grip and he will not let you go. Let's pray. Oh, Father in heaven, we, we do thank you for this passage. We thank you for the promises that are contained in it. We pray that just as those original readers of Zechariah um, could, could hold out hope for a king, we too would hold out hope for a king. But Lord, unlike those who are present on Palm Sunday, who mistook the king for who he really was, Lord, would you help us to not do the same? 
Would you help us to have our eyes set on a king who has come to bring a salvation greater than anything we could ever envision? Lord, help us to believe and recognize that life is found in relationship with you and not anywhere else. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen.